I hope you're holding on and hanging in as we continue to move through this series in Hebrews. There is a common cultural habit or custom that uh, really erodes into the lives of people who are trying to live by faith. It's part of the culture we live in and we've pretty much adopted the characteristics of it and it kind of goes like this. We have been taught, we have learned that um, we are basically the judge and jury of everything, whether it be marketing, education, politics, uh, authority, people, the common people are the judge of everything. And that moves itself into the realm of the spiritual in that our culture believes that we are sitting and invited to sit in judgment of the living God. That works its way into the whole area of authority, control, confidence in life, critical issues in terms of our lives of faith. C.S. Lewis outlined this whole concept in a brilliant essay called God in the Dock. He writes this, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now you can uh, see that manifest itself all over our lives. But when we are talking about a relationship with God, living by faith, and God in control, it doesn't bode well for those who think God is on trial and I'm the judge. The critical issue in life is for us to settle two important questions. Who is in control and from where does my confidence come? Those two questions must be settled. And the truth of the matter is that scary times usually reveal, in fact, I'll say every time, reveal the answer to those questions in your life. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and as you know, Hebrews is a sermon delivered by a preacher in what we think is around the time of 60 AD. Living in Rome in 60 AD was a scary time. Particularly because there was one by the name of Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus. How would you like a name like that? Born December 15, 37 AD. Died by his own hand in June 9th, 68 AD at the age of 31. Nero was not a kind leader. In fact, um, he uh, came to power under some questionable situation. When he was 16, his mother Agrippina was believed to have poisoned his father Claudius so that Nero could rise to power. But it really wasn't so that Nero could rise to power as much as so that she, Agrippina, could rise to power. 
At 16, the queen mother would be the most powerful person in the empire. In fact, in the ancients, for the most part, the queen mother was always the most powerful creature in the empire. However, five years later, when he was 21, he orchestrated her assassination. Although he misjudged her resourcefulness in a botched uh, sinking of a boat episode where he had her boat sunk, but he didn't realize she was such a good swimmer. She managed to swim to shore and her life was uh, spared from drowning only to meet one of Nero's executioners on the shore who ran a sword through her and she died. In 64 AD, uh, Nero, of course, who was egregiously moral, you can read this kind of stuff from Tacitus and, uh, and Josephus and a number of writers, uh, but he was egregiously immoral, uh, responsible for serial murders, uh, had his own wife Octavia murdered so that he could go on and live with other women. Uh, and in particular, he eventually married a man by the name of Pythagoras in 64 AD. That same year, July 19, 64 AD, he wanted a tract of land that was a neighborhood uh, that he had uh, coveted, which was uh, populated by uh, poor people in Rome, and he set it on fire. At least that's what some historians suggest, that he set it on fire so that he could have the neighborhood and build his amazing palace called the Domus Aurea. And then proceeded to blame Christians making them the scapegoats, burning many, crucifying many, and sending many to the wild beasts to be eaten by animals. Four years later, it was rumored that the Senate had had enough of Nero and had decided that they would execute him. And as they were coming for him, and he was uh, anxiously pacing back and forth in the palace, he was heard to mutter this, and forgive my Latin, qualis artifacts paria, what an artist dies in me. He was so arrogant. And then, because he didn't have the strength to kill himself, he had one of his executioners run a sword through him, and he died at the age of 31. What he didn't realize is that they actually weren't intending to execute him but incarcerate him because, as you know, they had this sense that the emperors were somewhat divine and no one wanted to kill a god, and so he died. It is to this backdrop. Now, we don't know exactly what incidents that I've just relayed to you took place when the preacher was preaching this sermon, but it is within this backdrop, either before or after or soon to come, that in fact, we read these words from the preacher. Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now here they were living in that scary time with that particular leader, in that backdrop, and the preacher boldly stands in front of the Christians who were, in many cases, 
going back on their faith or considering going back on their faith and saying, hey, don't you realize we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the true son of God. Now hold on to your faith, the faith that you profess. Don't fear people. It's just the, the curtain of the temple has now been torn and fallen. <laughs> For those of you who are fanning yourselves, and there are many of you stirring up quite a breeze up here. Thank you. <laughs> We're trying to cool the place down the old-fashioned way. There's nothing like the fall. It's too cold at night. It's too warm during the day, and you just can't get it right. So all the doors, the old-fashioned way, the doors are all open. Fresh air is blowing through here. The fresh air of the Spirit of God will keep you awake and you will listen and hear of the great things of God. Well, having said that, I better pray and let's get looking at the text. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for uh, this great contrast, the backdrop of the scary times of life and the issues of control and the issues of confidence, the issues of our faith over against our great high priest who has gone through the heavens, the true Son of God, in Him we trust. Oh God, I pray this morning that you would bless your word to our hearts, that we would listen to you, we would hear from you, and our hearts would be strengthened, oh God, in our own scary times, for your honor and glory, I pray, and that we might recognize afresh the amazing benefits of what it means to be servants of the living Christ, and who he is, his credentials, his resume, in comparison to all the other authorities and the kings and the rulers, we alone serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the Lord of glory, the great high priest, the Son of God. And I pray, O oh, oh, oh Father, today that our faith might be strengthened for the journey. For I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, would you look with me at Hebrews chapter 4? I want to look at Hebrews 4, chap, uh, verse 14, and read through to 5.10. Therefore, now, of course, the therefore is because he's continuing to preach a sermon. Can you imagine, um, I'm having trouble preaching, uh, you know, uh, condensing into a dozen or so sermons this, and, and we're, not even, we're not even touching all of this sermon. It's unbelievable, but... But, but what we aren't going to look at today, I mean, the, the therefore that's immediately before it is he's talking about the Word of God is, is living and active. It, it's a, it works, in other words. God's Word works. I mean, how many times have you, have you obeyed the Lord God and you've realized, hey, you know what? God's Word really works. And we tell it to each other, you know, listen to God's Word. And so he talks here about it being living and active. It's not just something you read. This isn't just literature. This isn't just words on a page. This is the energy of God put in print for us that we might embrace it. And through the power of the Spirit of God working in our life, as we apply it to our lives, it actually really works. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It gets right through 
to your life. It gets right through into your heart. And as you're reading it, you're thinking to yourself, God really knows who I am. I'm reading about myself. This is how I think. Sometimes I'm like this. And God is talking right to me. In fact, today he's talking to me. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges your thoughts and attitudes of your heart. And nothing in all of creation is hidden. God knows how tough your life is. God knows the struggles you've been going through. God knows the brokenness that's in your heart today. Nothing is hidden from him. And he knows it. And this is our great high priest who has gone into the throne room of heaven on your behalf, knowing full well what's going on in your life. And everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of uh, of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, if he knows all of this, he knows everything about you. His word is living and active. Pay attention to Christ and who he is and what he brings and what he has to offer you in this journey of faith that we are talking about. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, hold on to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted or tested in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then, come on, he's saying, come on, Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Anybody need any mercy? Anybody need any grace? Anybody in need? Anybody need help? Come to the throne of grace. Come before your Savior, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now we're talking about a a human high priest now. This is why he, the human high priest, has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God for us today. Now, To those of us who are struggling in scary times and struggling with control and confidence, Jesus, the great high priest who has gone through the heavens, the true son of God is a game changer for our lives. That's what the preacher is presenting to us in this small section 
of his sermon, as he introduces now in terms of the resume of Jesus, his high priestly resume. He's talked about his superiority throughout all of this sermon, and he's just leading on, compounding characteristic uh, upon characteristic on the, in the resume of Jesus Christ and his greatness. He's overwhelming them and intends to overwhelm them. We couldn't possibly give uh, enough superlatives to talk about Jesus Christ, but he's continuing to, to attempt to do so, that those who are struggling, those who are lacking confidence, those who are uh, struggling with who's in charge might be convinced that they should not let go of their faith, that they should not back away from Christianity and their beliefs and turn back to Judaism and superstition, but should go on in face of really challenging times. So, to insecure people in insecure times, when God seems weak, or when God seems away, or when God seems confusing, or when God seems deaf, or when God seems distracted, or when God seems disappointing, hold firmly, the preacher says, to the faith we profess. Give up, in other words, control, you trying to control the situation because Jesus has got this. Let him have it. Give it to him. Let's talk now for a moment about Jesus' sacred authority, the preacher says here. While Nero is freaking out all around you, Jesus, our great high priest, has gone through the heavens into the throne room of the living God. in total charge of the universe, in complete control. So, this Jesus, by the way, to a Jewish audience, to begin this section of his resume by calling him a great high priest, it meant something. In fact, it meant a lot. For us in this culture, we read this and it's, oh, yeah, that's nice. He's a great high priest, but we kind of read over it. But to the Jewish audience, it meant a lot. And here's why it meant a lot. In verse 1 of chapter 5, the high priest was selected among men and was appointed to represent them in matters related to God. There is nothing more important in all of the world than matters related to God. Can I get an amen? Because you're quiet. This is an amen moment. It's a, it's a good one. It's an easy opportunity. Even for the most timid of you, this is an amen moment. The matters related to God matter most in all the earth. So this man who was chosen to relate the matters of God to the people was of the highest significance. 
So when they heard high priest, that's what they first of all heard. It was the highest office that a human being could hold. Higher than a king, higher than any politician, higher than any sports hero, higher than any Hollywood movie star. The high priest brought to the people matters related to God. Now, not only is it the highest office a human being could hold on earth, it was once a year that that human being got to venture into the holy of holies, the place of God's presence. On the Day of Atonement, you've heard of that, Maybe you've heard of it called Yom Kippur. Yom, day, kafir, covering. Day of covering. The day of covering what? Covering over the sins of the people by the offering of a sacrifice so that the forbearance of God's judgment and wrath could be held back until the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world in a once-for-all sacrifice. But once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and only he could go. Anyone else went in, they would die immediate death because no one could approach God incorrectly. In fact, they would tie a rope around the high priest and send him in in case he died while he was in there. Why? Because the man ended up being in office for life. So you, you regularly had a doddering old high priest who could barely make it into the Holy of Holies with a rope around him, and everybody's like, that guy might die today. And so he's going in there, and I'm not going in after him. You know what I'm saying? So they tie a rope around that guy so that if he died in the Holy of Holies, they could haul him out. It was from a chosen family line, always the ironic line, line of Aaron, called by God, specifically chosen, the family line chosen, the man chosen, the same kind of theological concept of the chosen family of God. God's always operated the same way, not because of anything good in anybody, but because of His grace. These guys growing up in Aaron's family who might become the high priest, it wasn't because they were something special. It was because they were chosen by God's grace from the family of Aaron. To represent humanity, as I told you, in matters related to God, to offer sacrifices, verse 1, for sins, so that God would offer mercy and pardon. And it says to deal gently with the ignorant who were going astray because the high priest himself was a sinner and knew what it was to sin before the living God and was offering sacrifices for his own sins. And there's a big distinction that's made in the scriptures between sins of ignorance and sins of high-handedness. There's a huge difference in the heart of God towards sins of ignorance versus sins of arrogance. High-handed sins are knowing full well 
what the Word of God says and sinning bold face, shaking your fist at God and saying, I'm doing this anyway. That's a sin of arrogance called a high-handed sin. This is a sin of ignorance whereby people don't know they're violating the Word of God or don't or unaware that they are perhaps sinning. That's when we pray, we, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of, of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because sometimes we do stuff that's unrighteous that we don't even know we've done. And then he outlines his authority. He's not just the high priest, is he? We have a great high priest. No no one else has ever been called a great high priest. Only Jesus. So when they're hearing the high priest thing, they're thinking, wow, that's an amazing, that is the, the highest office that a human can have. Wait a second, a great high priest? We never heard of that before. This is the great high priest. This is a superlative on him. He is the high priest of high priests. It doesn't get any higher than the great high priest. He is the highest high priest. Okay? So when they're thinking about this, and he's not the one who's just gone into the tabernacle or the temple holy of holies. This great high priest has gone through the heavens. You know, we talk about going through the roof. The music went through the roof. Jesus Christ has gone through the heavens into The real Holy of Holies, not just a representation of the Holy of Holies in the old tabernacle, in the old temple, but rather the true Holy of Holies where this great high priest resides in the presence of God the Father. And he is the true Son of God. Now, you know, that would have been such an important contrast for a people in scary times in Rome when these pompous, arrogant emperors were waltzing around with their egregious lifestyles claiming to be gods. And the preacher is saying, no, listen, you know personally the great high priest who has gone into the real holy of holies, the true son of God. And I think he wanted to close the sermon right there and say, what is your problem? Seriously. But he goes on for 13 more chapters. Preaching a sermon. Because we are slow to hear and slow to obey. He is of the order of Melchizedek. This is such a... a, an interesting uh, description. And we don't have in our study a lot of time to talk about Melchizedek. Um, I have waffled back and forth through the years trying to understand who he was. Sometimes I've thought, I think he was a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we read things like he had no parentage, no, no father, no mother, um, and no beginning, no end. We hear descriptions like that, and that doesn't sound like a normal human being. So I'm thinking, maybe, maybe he's a Christophany, an appearance of, of uh, Jesus Christ. But then I read 
in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3, um, in this description of him, he was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. And so far, I'm so good. And I'm thinking, yeah, it sounds like Jesus. And then it says, like the Son of God. Like the Son of God. So, Kenny, I got to go back on it. I got to go back on what I said. Melchizedek appears to be a human being. And what's so amazing about Melchizedek is, of course, he was a king and a priest. Melchizedek, Melka meaning king, Zedek meaning righteousness. They call him the king of Salem, which is really the king of Shalem, which is Jerusalem, which is king of peace. Peace, righteousness. What God the Father was doing, as he's done so many times before in the time of Abraham, is pre-illustrating a time when the true high priest, the great high priest, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, would come and, and take away the sins of the world. And, and we realize how powerful the Word of God is here because the preacher of Hebrews did not get this information from Abraham because all Abraham knew was he was the king of Salem, he was the uh, king, king of righteousness, and he tithed to him, and he knew very little about him. Abraham didn't speak much or write much about Melchizedek. David wrote of him but didn't write much about him. And then all of a sudden we get to Hebrews and the preacher of Hebrews knows all kinds of things about Melchizedek. Where in the world did he get all of this information starting here in 5 and then through chapter 7? Where in the world other than the Holy Spirit told the preacher who wrote Hebrews who Melchizedek is, and this, it was preserved for this very sermon that would be written to this very group of people and preserved for us down through the ages, and we would marvel at the amazing things of God who thousands of years before had prefigured and pre-illustrated the coming of this great high priest called Jesus Christ. And so we have confidence in the word of God as the uh, origins are from the power of God through his Holy Spirit. And so he says to us, hold firmly, hold firmly therefore, as the son of God, hold firmly to the decision you have made, literally, uh, faith that you've professed, literally it is to, is to hold firmly to the decision you made to trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the faith you have professed. You have confessed. He says to them, you have confessed that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God who died to take away the sins of the world, that those who might trust in him, who might repent of their sins and turn to him for salvation would receive pardon for their sins and eternal life and a relationship with God the Father. This is what you have confessed. This is what you claim to believe. Now, I'm telling you, he says, as you're part of the salvation transaction, hold firmly to what you claim to believe. You, have, you claim to have trusted in Jesus Christ to hold your soul into eternity. 
Now he says, I'm telling you, with all of this mess and struggle around you, do not let go of that precious belief and truth. In this whole idea of faith and our part in salvation, the problem is we claim to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the powerful Son of God, and then when stuff gets tough around us, we seize control of the situation in our lives and try to handle things ourselves. And this is what the preacher is saying. The reason that you're thinking about leaving the faith is because you're trying out of your own strength to struggle through what's going on around you and you're failing miserably. It's not God who's failing. You're failing. Now, stop doing that Hold firmly to what you claimed, or more particularly, who you claimed to trust in. You've given Jesus the reins and trust of your eternal life. Why are you taking back your daily life from him and trying to run it yourself? You're going to fail miserably. That's why you came to Jesus in the first place. You're making a colossal mess of your life. And you finally came to your senses and realized, hey, this thing isn't working. Maybe Jesus has an answer for me. Maybe Jesus can take my life and turn it around and do something for me. And so you trusted in him. You turned from your sinful ways and you turned to Jesus Christ to trust in him. Why are you taking back your life now? So hold firmly to what you claim to believe, even when it's an inconvenient truth. And let's face it, there's a whole lot of things in the Bible that are inconvenient truths. Would you give me an amen on that? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's very inconvenient, that's painful, that's a struggle, that's a sacrifice, that feels like it won't work. Hold firmly to the faith that you profess. In a trust crisis... A trust crisis will color every time how you face anything that's uncomfortable. And you will either trust in Jesus or keep trusting in yourself. And if you trust in yourself, you're in danger of going back because it'll be miserable and it'll feel like a failure. And the thing is, the preacher's saying, your great high priest, he's your only ticket into the presence of the living God. That, that's what it means to be high priest. High priest was the one who brought the people to, to, to God. He was the access. Jesus Christ, if you will, is our backstage pass into heaven at any given moment that our little heart desires. You want to be in the presence of God? It's through Jesus Christ. So he says, hey, you've got all this trouble around you. You've got Nero breathing down your throat. You've got family problems. You've got work problems. You've got health problems. I want you to know that our great high priest has, has carved a pathway into the, through the heavens into the very throne room of the Holy of Holies. And guess what? He is your pass 24-7, 365 days of the year into that presence of the living God. So go there. It's like, go there. Why are you not going there? 
he says to him, approach, so approach. Keep going to the place of prayer confidently because Jesus gets it. He gets this. He gets you. He knows you. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sinning. Jesus gets this. He's been there. He's done that. So in the present tense, he is saying, so therefore let us keep approaching the throne of grace. That's a place of prayer. That's get on your knees because you're invited into the holy of holies. Nobody's going to tie a rope around you for fear you might die there. It's okay if you die there because you're in the presence of the living God. And that's what you've been invited to do. How can he help? How can he help? He goes before you into the, the presence of the Father in heaven loaded with sympathy. Why don't most of us get help from each other when we're really down? Because we're not sure that the other person will even sympathize with us. It's like they've never been there. We're not, we're not certain that they won't embarrass us because of what we bring. We're not certain that that person won't try to shame us for, shame on you for sinning. We're afraid that, that we might be shamed or we're afraid that they might be arrogant about it and tell us off, or we're afraid that they won't want to hear about it, just go away because they don't have time. Well, that's not who we approach. When we approach the throne room of the God in heaven, uh, we go to one who sympathizes with us, who welcomes us in. He will not shame us. He will not embarrass us. He will not get arrogant with us. He will not tell us off. He, he will not discourage us, but rather he will sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows we are weak. And he embraces us and welcomes us. And that's why we were told, go to him all the time. You can go all the time because he will always, always sympathize with you. And he will always welcome you. And he will always help you. And he will always bring mercy to you. And he will always offer you grace in your time of need. Why are you not going to him? This is what the preacher is saying. Because after all, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Think Jesus doesn't understand our lives? Well, Jesus, you know, we say, well, you don't know how hard it is to obey the Lord. You don't know how, how, how hard it is for me to do what God wants me to do. Well, maybe I don't. Maybe the person beside you doesn't. But I know someone who does. The one who learned obedience through the things he suffered. See, Jesus knows the cost of obeying God the Father. This is not in contrast to disobedience, by the way. Jesus wasn't in that realm at all. There was no disobedience choices going around with Jesus. It's simply put that he knows the toll and the cost of obeying the Lord 100% of the time. He knows how hard that is. He knows what it takes. He knows the strength and the energy that he had to draw from the Father in heaven to do that. He knows what you need. 
He also knows, it says here, do you you not realize that he knows what it is to get on his knees in prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears as Jesus knows what it is to scream out to the Father in heaven, Father, no, not this, I can't do this. Do you not think this was a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was dragged into that garden and when he fell on his knees in prayer and said, Oh, Father in heaven, if there is another solution, if there is an alternative way, uh, please, please, right now, could you please tell me what it is? And he knows what it is to have to obey the Father 100% while the Father in heaven said to him, No, It has to be this way, son. When you have pleaded with God for a different way, and God has said to you, no, this is the way it has to be. Jesus knows your heart and your situation. It says that he not only obeyed the Lord 100%, of the time, but he was made perfect, not because Jesus was in the least imperfect. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus has fully finished what was intended for him. This is a completion word. Jesus finished the whole journey. He completed the task. He completed the assignment, the purpose for which he came. He completed it, perfected what it means to accomplish perfectly the journey the Father gives to you. Jesus modeled that, and so much so that he went all the way to the cross of Calvary so that you and I could experience eternal salvation. That was how important it was. So he became, therefore, then the source of eternal salvation to those of us who choose to obey him. Not of our own strength, but as we approach the throne of grace and say, oh God, if there could be a different way. I can't do this. I know I can't do this. Don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to go through this. And the Father will say, I'm asking you to go through this. You have to go through this. And I will be there with you. I will never leave you or I'll never forsake you because I'm going to complete in you. The whole discipleship process is to be made perfect, same thing, or complete, finishing what God has started in our lives. Ah, but he's the one who understands my temptations. How could he? He's the son of God. How hard can it be for God to be tested or tempted? Can God even be tempted? To ask that question in a way is to ask the wrong question of this text. Because the word is tempted or tested. The issue is hinges on the word couldn't. Jesus as 100% human and 100% God couldn't sin. So many of us say, well then, how big a deal is that temptation then, the temptations of Christ? How big a deal were they? How can he sympathize with me? Because I can sin, he he couldn't. Now the word isn't couldn't so much as in because he was divine, he couldn't. 
the, uh, the preacher already knows that and concedes that. What he is getting at is this. He was tested with intense testing. He had a face-to-face, tete-a-tete, with the king of evil in the wilderness. It doesn't get more extreme than that. None of us in here have ever had a face-to-face with Satan himself. Maybe demons, maybe other, but never, I'm pretty sure. A face-to-face with the king of evil, it doesn't get more extreme than that. And Jesus couldn't fail. Because if Jesus failed, all of humanity, all of us are destined forever to destruction. The pressure on Jesus that we need to understand, which is way beyond anything any of us have ever or ever will experience is, we can sin. And it isn't a game stopper for the universe. If Jesus sinned, it's over. It's totally over for all eternity. So Jesus had the pressure of the mission on him. He couldn't fail or we're done. And so he knows what it is to rely on the Father as the king of evil comes to him and says, I will give you the glory without the cross. Why don't you take that road, Jesus? You think that wasn't tempting? Do you think that test wasn't real? Jesus, there's no sin in Christ. And yet, he would be most sensitive to sin, unlike us. Jesus, unlike us, when we are, uh, when, when the, the struggles and the pain and the struggle physically of life become so oppressive, uh, eventually our physical bodies go numb and shut down. We go into a coma and unconscious. MacArthur brings this out very nicely, but Jesus couldn't and didn't. When the pressures of sin are so immense upon us and the temptation is so extreme, what do we do? We cave. Regularly, we sin. Jesus couldn't sin or it was game over for all of us. And so he understands fully. He knows the pressure of testing and temptation. And he can sympathize with us. So the call here is keep a regular audience with the king. He's approachable. And doles out power you need to face the story appointed to you. Listen, let me close with this. A security crisis in scary times will make you afraid of God rather than fearlessly approaching him. We fear regularly what God might have in mind. Hey, listen, we buy into this. We buy into Jesus as the high priest. We buy into him being in control. But when it comes time to have confidence in his decision for our life, that's when we fold our tents. Because we're not certain that we really can trust his will for our life. And if anything, we would rather live in the Garden of Eden where everything's nice and everything's fresh and everything's beautiful, but guess what? Most of the time, life drags us into the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And all of the emotion, all of the feeling is not going to help us when we are on our knees crying before the Lord who's asking us to do something that is unthinkable. And we have a choice at that moment to either fear what God wants us to do and what he's going to do or have faith in the Jesus we have confessed. And there's only one way that that will take place in your life, and it has to start before you're in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why the preacher here is saying, listen, make sure that your faith is active every single day, that you're actually living out what you believe. Not just believing, but putting into action what you believe. And if you're struggling to do that, he says, Every day, every moment, rush into the throne room of the King of Kings. He sympathizes with your weakness and wants to give you mercy and grace in the time of need. Beloved, go there all the time. And then I'm convinced that scary times tomorrow cannot unsettle the soul of that person who today is determined to trust in Jesus by approaching him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are doing that right now. We are weak. We are scared. Life's a struggle. Sometimes we struggle to trust you, O God, but we know that if we go into the throne room of the Lord of glory, you will sympathize with us. You will strengthen us. You will help us. You will not embarrass us or shame us. You will love us and empower us. You will give us mercy and grace in a time of need. So, Lord, I pray that we will increase our faith by increasing our time in your presence in prayer, O oh God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. In whom do you believe? It will matter. It matters today, but it will matter in a time of struggle, in a scary time. Mary Bostonquet, in her book, The Life and Death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this, time finally ran out for Bonhoeffer. It was a scary time in the early 40s in Germany when a group of godless madmen took over Germany, much like the emperors of Rome in the past. And for Christians, it was a very difficult time. And there was a pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood for faith, the faith that he professed he held on to in a time of trouble, in a scary time. On the Sunday before the day of his execution, there was gathered with him a number of other Roman Catholic priests and even a communist atheist who urged him to deliver a sermon on that Sunday morning in that prison. These are the verses he chose to expound upon. By his wounds we are healed. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1.3. The sermon touched their lives deeply that day. On Monday morning, there was an executioner dispatched from Berlin to move him to Flossenburg. And there at between 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning, he was stripped of his clothes and taken to the gallows. And as he kneeled at the gallows, he wrote his last writings for those beloved brothers and sisters in the faith that they might be encouraged. And this is what he wrote. The key to everything is the in him. All that we may rightly expect from God and ask him for is to be found in Jesus Christ. The God of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with what God, as we imagine him, would do or ought to do. If we are to learn what God promises and what, and what he fulfills, we must persevere in quiet meditation on the life, sayings, deeds, sufferings, and death of Jesus. It is certain that we may always live close to God and in the light of his presence, and that such living is an entirely new life for us, that nothing is then impossible for us because all things are possible with God, that no earthly power can touch us without his will, and that danger and distress can only drive us closer to him. And then stripped of all of his clothes, and an attempt to strip him of his dignity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was sacrificed and ultimately to the Lord God. Beloved, it is too late when you are kneeling under the gallows stripped of your clothing to finally write something like that if you haven't spent a life in the presence of God through prayer and holding firmly to the faith you profess by acting on it every single day. It is then you can be hauled to the gallows and proclaim that no one, nothing can separate me from the love of God, nor can anything get in the way of His will for my life or my relationship with Him. Father, I pray this morning that we would not leave quickly without reassessing our own relationship with you in faith. Are we holding firmly to the faith that we profess? Do we live as if we trust you, O oh God? And do we run into your presence so that we can live in trust? Thank you, O oh God. Thank you, Christ, for what you have done for us, our wonderful, loving Savior, making it pathway for us into the presence of Jesus in heaven. Oh, Lord, we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.